Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Live from Los Angeles, the Win Without Competing Show with Dr. Arlene Barrow, host and creator of the Right Fit Method, the key to professional and personal success. Now, let's join Dr. Arlene. Thank you, Virgil. Win Without Competing will celebrate its third anniversary on Blog Talk Radio in October. BTR selected our show to appear in the featured section of the homepage of BTR this Saturday, the 24th, in recognition of the quality of our show. Thank you, BTR. I want to thank my listeners for their emails. I am delighted that my Right Fit Method is changing their lives, and I hope that it will change yours. This is an important time of year to reflect, to learn new success strategies, and to plan for next year. The goal is to hit the ground running in 2012. Candidates seeking full-time positions, self-employed professionals, and small business owners share the same challenge. We must sell our brand. It sounds simple. It's not. The first step is to recognize that you have a brand to sell. Those seeking new positions have two major challenges – getting interviews, and eliciting offers. If you can't capture interviews, then the match between you and the employer is unclear in all your employer communications. If you're skilled at capturing interviews but can't get offers, you have not convinced the employer to hire you. Why not? If you're self-employed or a small business owner, and can't sell your product or services, why not? Answer, you have not convinced the employer, the buyer, or the client that you are the right fit. Remember, you're the seller. It doesn't matter whether you're an actor, like my guest today, an accountant, an attorney, or own your own business, you must convince the decision-maker to select you. To set the stage to sell yourself as the right fit, you must change your mindset from the standard of best to the standard of the right fit. As children, we were taught to make decisions by comparing and contrasting alternatives to select the best. Think about it. Picture a barrel of rat-infested rotten apples. Compare and contrast the apples, searching for the best. Pick one. What do you have? A rat-infested rotten apple, of course. I have asked my rat-infested rotten apple question over and over again. You've probably guessed it's my favorite question. It is. Some people actually say you have the best rat-infested rotten apple. The point is, if you compare and contrast junk, you still have junk. If employers compare and contrast wrong fit candidates and select one to hire, 
they've hired a wrong fit, not the best. This holds true for every decision you make using the standard of best, whether you're searching for a job, a house, or a spouse. The standard of best is the wrong fit standard to use if you want to make the right decisions. You need to learn how to use the standard of the right fit, which I created. And this is the foundation of my right fit method. Once you adopt the standard of the right fit, you are ready to begin branding yourself. Wouldn't it be wonderful to hear, you're hired. I want to buy your business. We want you to host our new reality series. You can start learning my right fit method now and make it yours. The fact that you've turned, tuned into the show is a good beginning. But there are other ways. Attend my right fit branding series of four seminars on the west side of Los Angeles on Wednesday, October 5th, 12th, 19th, and 26th at 7 p.m. Think about changing your mindset, shaping your brand the right fit, selling your brand package to pitch, sharing your brand manage the process. To request your invitation to the seminar series, which includes a detailed description of each seminar, email drbarro, that's Dr. Barrow, at win. W-I-N, withoutcompeting.com. Dr. Barrow at winwithoutcompeting.com or call my office 310-441-5305. 310-441-5305. Please register on or before Friday, September 30th. If you're not able to attend all four seminars, if space permits, you can register for individual seminars. Note that I will conduct the seminar series again in November on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. If you're in New York City, London, Paris, or my hometown, Brookline, Massachusetts, and you want to attend my Right Fit Branding seminar series, please contact me about my webinars. In the meantime, I suggest that you read my book, Win Without Competing, nominated for a Business Book Award, which you can quickly pick up at Amazon. On to my guest interview, in which I'll demonstrate my right fit method. Michael Yurchik, award-winning actor and voice artist, is my guest today. You've heard his voice as Dennis Mitchell on Mad Men, and Buddy the Elf on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. He started his career as a production assistant on the Robert Redford film, A River Runs Through It. Since then, Yurchik has appeared in multiple films, television programs, and stage plays. As a voice artist, he has mastered a broad range of characters, which are featured on the Disney Channel, Disney, Cartoon Network, Nickelodeon, Spike TV, and ESPN2. Watch what I'm going to ask him to do. 
Wouldn't you like to hear him do Buddy the Elf? Stay tuned. Welcome, Michael, to Win Without Competing. Hello, Dr. Arlene. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Where were you born, and what did your parents do as you were growing up? I was born in Wellesley, Massachusetts, uh, right down the street from you, actually. And uh, my parents um, were both uh, educators, but my father was a cardiologist and a professor at Harvard, uh, and my mother was uh, the director of education and and ended up being the headmistress of several different private uh, prep schools. What values did your parents teach you? Well, I think uh, like like most people's parents, I, my my parents tried to teach me to to do the right thing and to be to be kind to others. And then they also taught me that uh, that if I was passionate about something, there's no reason why I couldn't achieve it. Uh, but they also always sort of uh, continued to remind me that it was always important to give back. Both of them were sort of at the top of their fields. Uh, professionally, but they also uh, maintained a teaching career as well. So my mother was teaching, uh, was uh, uh, in a, a visiting professor at the University of Chicago while she was the head of the University of Chicago Lab Schools, and my father was teaching at the Harvard Medical School while he was a cardiologist on staff at the Mass General Hospital. You were very fortunate, I think, to have the parents that you have I'm particularly interested in your mother being the head of the lab school. We'll get to that in a moment. I want to go back to the values. I mean, not that I'm asking how much money a year your parents made, but at the same time, it appears that you grew up in an upper-middle-class family. Would you say that's correct? I'd say that's pretty accurate, sure. Okay. Well, I guess what I meant in terms of the values, how did they uh, express to you the ways in which you should treat others who might be less fortunate than you? Right. Well, I think that that we were constant. I have two older sisters, and I think that all of us were were reminded constantly that we we were lucky to have what we had. Uh, our situation made it possible for us to go to great schools, uh, to have the opportunity to explore all kinds of different uh, interests and uh, academic uh, and athletic and and artistic pursuits. And because we were able to do that, uh, we all found our own way and discovered what was the right fit for each each of us. And, uh, And so I think that my parents reminded us that this was not the case for every kid in the country or the world certainly and uh and so we were they 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 just instilled in us an appreciation for the things that we had and reminded us that that those kinds of uh, uh physical uh, and uh, and monetary things were not what was most important but what, but the relationships that we had and 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 our own happiness and the happiness that we were able to help others achieve how did they teach you to handle money? Did they give you an allowance so that in other words, so that you wouldn't grow up and think that they were going to take care of you? How did they build kind of the worth work ethic and a sense of responsibility because right. you have all of that. I know that from talking with you prior <laughs> to the show i try i try the, you know I think 
we never got I, I was never given an allowance per se, uh, but what I I was paid for my labor. <laughs> so I was ah. given jobs to do. So I did I mowed the lawn and and, uh, and raked the leaves and shoveled the snow and uh, as I got older I and and a little more capable with a hammer I would help out doing you know odds and ends and, and minor repair work around the house and and so on and and, uh, and then from a very young age I started working with kids so I was a camp counselor starting when I was in sixth grade I was an assistant counselor and then became uh, throughout high school uh, started working every summer working with kids uh, and and worked all the way through college I was a pizza delivery guy and and uh, <laughs> refereed the refereed the intramural hockey league and so you know i i paid i i paid a portion of of my own way each time now granted we were fortunate enough to have uh you know that my parents had the means to send me to schools that that i wouldn't have been able to afford on my own but uh it was important to them that i realized that that all of this didn't come for free when it came time for you to have your first car what were your expectations? Do you remember? I do. The, you know, the, the uh, my first car was a hand-me-down of a hand-me-down of a hand-me-down, um, where my father got a new car and gave his car to my sister, who then ended up going to undergraduate uh, school close to home, and so that car uh, then was was passed on to me. It was it was a an old uh, Toyota Corolla, and uh, it didn't last much longer. It, it only lasted about a year before it sort of uh, fizzled out altogether. But, uh, you know, it, it was – I lived – at that time, my mother and I had moved to Chicago, and uh, my my sister was going to school at Harvard back in, back in Cambridge, and my dad was still there. Uh, and uh, my older sister had moved on to the West Coast where she was in school. But uh, they didn't need cars, and, uh, and I did. And so the car – uh, came my way and uh, and and I had it. It was a it was not it was not uh, it was not a, a Rolls Royce by any stretch. It wasn't glamorous, obviously. Right. Going further, um, you had a wonderful education, which included the arts. You attended Milton Academy and then the Lab School in Chicago. President Obama's children attended the Lab School prior to moving into the White House. Interestingly enough, as you mentioned before, your mother became the head of the lab school. How right. did you how did you feel about going to a school where your mother was the head? <laughs> that you know, it's funny, that is a question that I'm asked a, a lot and it was never honestly an issue. Um I don't know it's hard to put a finger on exactly what it was about the way my mom. I was proud of my mom. I, I think I think is really the simplest way to put it. And it was a large enough institution. You know, it, uh, we were right on the campus of the university, and she was in a completely different building than than the high school was, which is where I was by the time she was head. And so uh, I didn't have a lot of interaction. And I think that she, uh, I think that she arranged it with the the dean of students and the principal of the high school <laughs> so that if there were to be if if disciplinary action was necessary they would handle it when it came to my to my case <laughs> not that there was a lot of it but there was there there was every every so often I would get out of line and 
though my mom didn't didn't ever uh, embarrass me in school. She certainly knew about it, and the moment I got home, I had to answer to her. But the, but other than that, though, it, it really wasn't uncomfortable at all. I never I never considered it anything other than uh, than my mom being an accomplished woman who who was uh, at the top of her game, and I respected that and I admired it as well. Well, it sounds like she was an excellent role model in terms of a potential wife as well. In other words, that you would be comfortable with having a wife that would be a professional woman. That's true. That's very true. And, in fact, my my wife is, uh, at, <laughs> I'd like to think it's coincidence, but I don't know what Freud would say. It, uh, my wife is a school administrator and, and, and an accomplished <laughs> one at that. So. <laughs> now we really have something to speak about, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at another show. <laughs> That's terrific. So now tell us about the lab school. I know that when we talked prior to the show, you really expressed the fact that it was wonderful for you to go to a school which incorporated the arts. Could you elaborate about exactly what that meant when you were at that school, as well as the Milton Academy? Sure. Well, at lab, the, the thing about the, the the incredible thing about the lab school is that it's, it's it really is an integral part of the University of Chicago. So, by we had access to everything that that the U of C offered in terms of uh, facilities and uh, uh, the library and the gyms and and uh, the campus and and so forth. So, we very much as students, as young students, were were privy to a lot of options as far as what we were interested in. If you were interested in physics, there was, you know, one of the top physics departments in the in the country at right down the street. If you were interested in theater, there was an, not only an excellent theater at our school, but also uh, on the university campus as well. And then we also had, of course, access to everything in the in the city of Chicago, which is rich with uh, with art and, and, and theater. So all of it seems so possible, and our teachers, I think, did a great job of always making that available to us and making us understand that with the right amount of passion, interest, and motivation, you were able to do whatever you wanted to do, as long as you did it with a sort of a professional isn't the right word, but as long as you did it with a mature and and uh, and sincere desire, it was it was the, the world was your oyster. So all of that made it very possible for us to experiment, and I, and and that's that's just what I did. So I was an athlete for a long time, but I was also interested in theater, and I got into it more and more as my high school years progressed. And then by the time I was a senior, I was very uh, very much a part of the theater department and uh and went on to to continue studying and, and working on it in college and then graduate school and ultimately from what you're describing it appears as if they sub- subscribe to my philosophy which is uh rigidity is the enemy of creativity that they clearly fostered creativity in their students i think absolutely yeah it was it was a matter of pursuing your own interests to whatever end you chose to 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 go to uh so the sky was the limit and uh, the only person putting the brakes on would be you uh you were encouraged and 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 helped if you wanted it or needed it but 
and uh, certainly steered in the right direction if people felt like you were getting off track. But uh, but we were we were allowed to do, uh, you know, what what made us happy, what thrilled us, and because I think what they were their philosophy went even further, which was that I think that they wanted to to build a community of you know what they call lifelong learners and and uh and make sure that everyone was was uh, was constantly exploring new opportunities and new new uh interests and and taking each of those as far as they wanted to go with them at what age did you discover that you had the capability of creating a wide array of voices I know we talked about your sister. Tell yeah. us about the accents. Well, my sister my sister is something of a linguist. So she speaks Japanese and Italian and Spanish and Portuguese and uh and uh and Italians and and she has always been interested in languages and was always studying languages and she and I spent a lot of time together. This is my middle sister and I. And um I I wasn't as good at picking up the languages, but I was pretty good at doing the accents. And so, you know, we would we would have conversations where she would speak in Spanish and I would speak with a Spanish accent. And uh, we and at a Spanish restaurant, we might order order uh, food uh, that way. So you know, I like two burritos, por favor. You know that kind of thing. And uh, she would <laughs> she would just ask for them in, in Spanish. And uh, and we you know we had a good time doing it. And and we also. I I realized that I was able to match those kinds of those kinds of things and then we would see people on television or cartoons and and uh get a kick out of the way someone spoke. Uh everybody at that time loved loved Fantasy Island so it's de plane de plane, you know that kind of thing and uh and uh and I just uh, I that started when when we were very young, probably, you know, 8 8 years old or so and then uh, I continued doing it. Uh I just I guess I had a good ear for other people's voices. So that sounds as if you were busy entertaining when you were pretty darn young. Only you weren't <laughs> being paid for it at that time. Yeah, that's right. I wasn't. <laughs> you were into BA in theater from Colgate University. Why did you select Colgate? I had a real firm idea of what my best fit college was, and it was definitely a small liberal arts school on the east coast with a picturesque campus uh part of i don't know how that image was put in my brain but i knew what my school was supposed to look like uh and i went and visited colgate and sure enough it was i mean it's a it's a postcard up there it's it's absolutely beautiful the campus is gorgeous uh the community is small but dedicated and it it was a good school uh you know it was one of the one of the best schools i got into but there i got into other schools as well that that uh that felt too big to me or felt like they they just didn't quite fit exactly the way i had imagined it the blueprint as you say and and uh, right yeah the blueprint of the right fit right. right rather than comparing and contrasting you yourself have a set of standards composed of criteria and you're searching for that which matches it so That's it right. sounds like colgate matched it and uh apparently you had told me that you had not made the decision as to your major until you started uh, at Colgate. 
That's right. I was an English major when I first when I first got there. I did know that I loved analyzing texts, and I knew that I loved <laughs> I loved talking and uh, and discussing and and sharing ideas and so on. And while while I was there, almost inadvertently, I had I was drawn to Shakespeare and and different theater classes, which at the time uh, were under the English department's sort of wing. Uh, my senior year of college, the the English department and the theater department split, uh, officially making theater its own department, which one could major in. And in fact, I was the first person to major in theater at Colgate. And the reason being, my professors looked at the my course of study and noticed that I was actually very close to achieving the theater major uh, just from having pursued that vein of the English department. And they came to me and asked me if I would like to change majors my senior spring and uh, and become the first theater major to walk the stage at, at Colgate. And uh, I was honored, and I, I said yes. How did, how did you get your first job after you were graduated from Colgate, and what did you do? Well, my first my first job was uh, was hardly a star turn. Uh, I was on a show called California Dreams, which was a Saturday morning live action kids show uh, about a bunch of uh, middle or high school kids. Uh, in you know, it looked a lot like Saved by the Bell, but it was a cheaper version of of that show, if everybody remembers that. And uh, it was literally a friend of a friend of a friend of my mother's new someone who knew someone who knew a casting director. And uh, I made a phone call uh, and was was given an appointment to go in to audition. And sure enough, I, I got the role. And uh, it was it was not a big one, but there are no small roles, only small actors. And so I enjoyed it. I had a great time. And, and because of that role, I was then able to join the union, uh, the Screen Actors Guild, which is a difficult first step for a lot of young actors. And, and uh it stands in the way a lot of times because you have to ha- you have to get your first role to get in the union, but you can't get in the union until you get your first role. So people find themselves in these catch in that in that kind of a catch twenty two. But I was able to, I was lucky enough to to, to be offered the role and and uh, and I got it and, and went on from there. You ap- you applied and were admitted to James Lipman's Actors Studio. You were all ready to start and changed your mind. Tell us what happened. So I had been living in Los Angeles uh, for seven years, I guess, at that time, and uh, I was making a pretty good living as a, as a commercial actor. And I, I hadn't yet started doing voiceover, but I was doing a lot of on-camera commercials and an occasional television show or movie and uh, having a great time. But I, at some point, I realized that I wanted more. I wanted—I I wasn't necessarily sure that I was that I was a master of the craft, as it were. And I also knew that I loved teaching, and so I wanted to go back to school uh, to get a master's degree, uh, so that I'd be able to teach, and so that I could consider myself a, a master of the craft. And so I had applied to, to the Actors Studio back in New York, and my wife and I moved back there just as the program was about to start. I was offered a role in a film that I had auditioned for months before uh, that was shooting for six weeks in Mexico. And I had the weekend to decide. Uh, the school was not willing to let me go and miss the first three weeks of school, which it would have been. Um, but uh, And so they said I had to make a choice. I could either go do the movie or I could come to school. And um, 
I did a lot of soul searching in about 48 hours, and it was not an easy decision. Uh, but I ultimately decided to do the movie, and I, I pulled out of the program because I guess I felt like I was being offered a professional opportunity that people coming out of the pro, graduating from the program, would have jumped at. And though it was coming before I went in, it was it was an opportunity nonetheless, and it seems too rare and precious to to let it slip. So. I did it, and uh, and that was that was uh, that was, that was a tough weekend for I'm sure for my whole family, but uh, but we made it through. Well, but if you have a, the blueprint, and everybody agrees as to what the blueprint is, then the decision becomes a lot easier, don't you think? Because yeah. you have a clear vision of why it was the right fit for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think so. And 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 in that case it was I I knew I had already been in the entertainment industry for 7 or 8 years and so I understood just how hard it was to get jobs at all, let alone a job that would be a 6-week contract, which by the way would then provide health insurance for both my wife and I for the entire year. Uh it would be more money than I had made to that point uh in the industry. And uh, and it was an opportunity to be on a working film set for six weeks, which in and of itself is an education. I, I think that people come out of drama school and they and they're excellent at, at doing theater, but they don't they have precious little experience in the real world, and and especially on a movie set because they movie sets just aren't easy to come by. So uh, actually getting to be on set with people. And uh, and working as an actor as opposed to a production assistant, which I had done before, as you said, in A River Runs Through It, uh, was uh, just seemed too good to be true. Uh, so I so I did it, and and I have no regrets. I was I did come back, and I was I, I had to do some more soul searching and and figure out exactly what that blueprint was, what that right fit was, uh, in terms of why I wanted to go back to school in the first place. And when I thought about it. Ultimately, the reason I really felt like I wanted to do it was a to train further as an actor, and b to be able to teach, to really become uh, to become proficient at, at teaching uh, the craft. And so, I enrolled in the American Academy of Dramatic Arts and uh, studied the, my own side of the craft, the artistic side, and then found a program at NYU, a master's program in what's called educational theater, uh, which is essentially the art of teaching. And uh, and and using theater as a, as a motive of uh, of education, and uh, I enrolled in both and uh, and finished both, and I've never been happier. While we're talking about movies, tell us how you saved your role in Beer Fest. <laughs> well, so shortly after I graduated, I got another role with the same company that had done the movie I left graduate school for in the first place they were so impressed everybody loved i was i was a a minor celebrity on the set because i had just dropped out of james lipton's program to come down to mexico to shoot this to shoot this movie so all the guys that that made the movie uh loved me for that and uh and uh they uh made another movie called beer fest uh, a few years later and i had just finished graduate school so now that wasn't a problem anymore and uh I they didn't they weren't sure what the role was going to be so they they just said we're going to figure something out come to Mex- come to New Mexico this time this was in New Mexico so I flew out to New Mexico and no sooner did I get there than one of the actors who had a larger role 
was uh, was called away overseas and needed to just pull out of the film, and I was given his role, and and so uh, suddenly I was I had a significant role in a, in another big movie. This was a Warner Brothers picture, so I was uh, I was given this role, and I was ecstatic. And on the very first day of shooting, uh, we were shooting a big beer hall scene. Uh, and my partner and I were supposed to clink glasses. We had these giant leader mugs and uh, beer steins, and uh, he slipped as he was going to, to cheers me and cracked it across my eyebrow and cut my, uh, you know, split my head uh, open and all, all but knocked me out. And I went down and was you know, bleeding and <laughs> and so and sore. But after uh, all, you're the you're the son of a cardiologist, so I expect exactly. you were calm, Michael. I tried to remain calm. I tried to remain calm, <laughs> and uh, I was carted off the set and you know given oxygen because I was I was you know sort of threatening to pass out kind of thing. And um, no sooner was I was I lying in the prone position and being told that I was going to have to go to the emergency room to get stitches, than I heard another guy. Uh, who was sort of the role just beneath me, uh, walking by, doing an English accent and practicing some of my lines. So I was I was an English guy. I was I was the captain of the of the English rugby team or the English drinking team, and uh, uh, I heard somebody running my lines right outside the medical tent, and that was all the that was all the motivation I needed. So I I just I quickly just told the the medic that I was going to be fine and could she please just stitch it up or, or uh, put a Band-Aid on it and some, they had, she had some epoxy, some, uh, uh, you know, skin epoxy. And she used that quickly and uh, and although I had a gash in my head for the rest of the movie, I jumped up and drank a glass of orange juice and stepped out and, and said, you know what, I'm not going <laughs> to let this one go. So I, I uh, uh, it was, uh, I got it through a fluke and I wasn't about to give it away through another fluke. So I stepped back out and again, Everyone appreciated that, and to this day, I work with those guys uh, in every project that they do. It's a comedy group called Broken Lizard, so they've been they've been great to me, and I've done all their movies, and uh, and I'm I'm quite sure that both the both the, the the leap of faith and dropping out of school to go down to Mexico with them, and then showing up with a broken head, uh, <laughs> and uh, and not suing Warner Brothers, uh, put put me, well, uh, now, put me in good Well, now now we're getting to something interesting. So you didn't do anything; <laughs> you just played your role because for you. That was the right fit. You weren't right. interested in money. You were interested in playing your role. I wonder what the other actor thought when you got up from your tomb, so to speak. <laughs> they got, well, he must have thought you were going on, the, you know, on your way out. Yeah, yeah. The the uh, the the other guy was was very excited, uh, you know, uh, thinking that he might have a chance at it. I don't know if that actually would have happened or not, but it reminded me how. Uh, how easily things can go away. So I, I was that was all I needed to jump up. And and then like I said, the the uh everyone on the set was very supportive and, and made sure that I was okay and we took it slow and, and uh and they were happy about my dedication. So it all worked out. Terrific. Let's talk more about uh you as a voice artist and how you really launched into the field and your progression in terms of acquiring, in essence, a cadre of agents as you developed yourself further. Sure. I think our audience would love to hear that because I'm sure the concept of a cadre of three agents would be appealing to them. (laughs) 
Yeah, the the my the three agents that I have actually are not all voiceover agents, but yeah, that I, I, that I realize. Yes. Yeah, but I'll explain it more uh, in a minute. The, the 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 plain simple truth is being an actor is a difficult thing, and one of the things that makes it so frustrating, especially for people who come from uh, an educated background, is that all through our lives we're kind of told that if you study hard and you work hard and you uh, do the things you're supposed to do, you will progress. And there's a natural sort of uh, way that that happens, and you're climbing a ladder, so to speak, and, and it makes sense. The entertainment industry doesn't really work that way, unfortunately, and, and often things it, it can seem as though every time you finish a job, you're back to square one. The one part of my career that actually has felt pretty logical in terms of getting it started and and going uh, and moving into uh, some success has been voiceover. And so, like I said, I was always interested in it. I always thought I had a knack for it. And when I got started doing on-camera commercial work, uh, the second time around that I that I I'd come back to Los Angeles after doing Beer Fest, I, my wife and I moved back to LA after we had our first child in New York and uh we we came back and I thought you know I'd like to I'd like to get into this uh and I went to my on-camera commercial agent and just said you know I, I what do I do and they told me to you know, they said you know well you're you may have a knack for it but you, there's there's a craft behind it too and there's just some technical things about doing voiceover that you that you really need to learn so take a class and here's someone we think would be a great person for you so I looked up this person. Uh, her name is Carol Kimball, and she's a casting, a voiceover casting director here in L.A. And I went and I took her class. And at the end of the class, I said, you know, I now that I've taken the class, I want to know from you, do you think this is something I should pursue? Because I don't want to waste time doing it if you think I'm kind of barking up the wrong tree here. And I and and I was having moderate success doing the other stuff. So she. She felt that that it was something that I that I should that I should keep doing, and she encouraged me to uh, put together a demo tape, which she helped me do, and then she personally submitted it to a couple of different top level voiceover agents, and uh, I was signed. I was lucky enough to be signed by one, and shortly after I started, after I signed with them, I booked a big campaign as the spokesperson for KB Toys, and uh, the rest is history. You know, the, the, it has just always been. Uh, a real staple in my uh, career, and in many ways, it's the, it is the thing that that has made the most sense. And so now, I have this cadre of agents. One of which is my voiceover agency, um, which is the William Morris Agency, and, and that they are a top shelf agency. Uh, and within the, the the that agency, I have a commercial person, a narration person and an animation person. So I have three agents at the at William Morris who are working hard for me, and then I also have my on-camera commercial agent at another place uh, called Brady, Brennan, and Rich, and then a third uh, theatrical agent for film and television at uh, what's called Manifest Talent. So, uh, yeah, I have a, a whole team of people behind me, and uh, sometimes they feel like they're working very hard, and sometimes I wish they they, they could work a little harder. But... <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I'm lucky. I'm lucky to have them, and and uh, and generally it works really well. Well, shortly we're going to hear about what you do because I think that's important. You certainly have 
taken the position that you're going to manage the process. Yes, you have these wonderful agents, but you're not leaving your career totally in their hands. And I think that that would make great sense. Yeah. I know yes. our listeners would love to hear Buddy the Elf from It's Always <laughs> Sunny in Philadelphia. <laughs> so I don't know if, if, if people out there are, are fans of uh, It's Always It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. It is definitely an adult uh, an adult themed show. Uh, on, in their Christmas episodes, they have uh, sometimes they drift into what into claymation uh, in in dream sequences, and they're hosted by a little elf. Uh, and and that is Buddy, and he talks like this, hey everybody, and he's uh, he's very very jolly and very very happy, but often leads them down very very nasty roads, and so uh, it's a it's a red herring. He's not uh, he's not as nice as his, as his uh, childlike voice might appear. I see. Okay, so that childlike voice is deceptive then. Right, exactly. It's sort of over-the-top kind of, oh, yay, everybody, everybody, everything's going to be just great. But it's not. <laughs> <laughs> we hear many different voices on animated shows, video games, commercials, promos, and audiobooks. What is your personal brand which differentiates you from other voice artists? My own personal brand is that I'm a I'm what I call a young announcer. Uh, I'm a great young announcer with a warm, quirky, professional voice talent uh, and remarkable flexibility. Uh, so I have what I think is uh, a marketable voice for straight commercial work. But then the voice has I have range. In other words, I can I can drop deeper or or pitch higher. Uh, as the product demands, so I have a I have a charactery voice, as you can hear. People used to think that I people always used to say that it sounded like I had sucked helium uh, when I was a little kid, but uh, now that I, you know what now that I've worked on it a little bit, it, it's uh, maybe not quite so much, but it does sound maybe just a little bit left of center. Um, but if I were to drop down into something like this, I could sound much more serious. Or I could get up here, and it could be a lot more friendly and kid kid savvy, you know. So there there are different ways you can kind of use the instrument that that is really your voice, and uh, and uh, I think that I've done a lot of work in a bunch of different categories, and so at this point I'm real comfortable kind of uh, working with a producer or a director in terms of finding what it is they need and helping them discover what their right fit is. And, you know, just allowing them to understand that I'm it. <laughs> <laughs> allowing them to understand. <laughs> I like that. I know that we talked about the fact that you don't push if you don't believe it is the right fit. You don't try to put yourself into a role that you believe isn't right for you. And I think that that's a commendable approach. Uh, yeah, you know, it, the thing I think that a lot of young actors, and I'm, I'm getting better at this because honestly, you know, as actors, I think all of us like to think that we can do everything, and uh, you know, there's no reason why, as an exercise, we can't. But in film and television and voiceover as well, uh, although maybe to a lesser degree, there is there there's really no fooling the camera, and you know, so there. I may be able to play, uh, you know, Othello on stage or or in in uh, uh, in an audio book, but 
in a movie version, they're going to want, you know, Danny Glover, and I'm not going to be him, <laughs> you know, and and, uh, and I'm man enough to admit it. <laughs> so it, it just it, it's a matter of kind of getting comfortable with the fact that film and television, especially, but but voiceover too, they want the genuine article, and they 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 don't necessarily they they don't want someone who can do uh, an English accent if they can have an English person. That said, if you can do it authentically, they will. They, you know, they they may never have to know. And I will do that. I will, when it comes to accents and things like that, or pitching up or pitching down, or aging myself just a bit, or or coming down in age a bit, I will manipulate it. I, I'll manipulate my my own instrument. But when they when they really know what they want, and they really know that that what they want is not something that's that's in the deck that I've been dealt. I'm I'm not uh, I'm not shy to say, you know, let's let's let me help you find someone that 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 might be better. I just think it's I just think it's sort of a professional way to do it rather than flail and end up doing something mediocre. No, I agree with you. Well, you want to set the standard. Yeah. You set the standard. That's how you're getting more and more business. Right. Uh, if you don't set the standard, then uh, problems will arise. Going further, what do you personally do? to manage your career to generate ongoing gigs without the assistance of agents. Right. One of the toughest things about being an actor especially is that we're sort of dependent on a lot of other people to to provide opportunities for us or to provide the actual jobs for us. Um, and that can be a really frustrating thing. But in the age of the Internet, there are a lot of ways that you can be helping yourself. And so... I subscribe to a couple of different websites, and I maintain profiles on those websites, advertising myself as, as a brand. Uh, I have my own website, uh, michaelyourcheck.com, where all of my demos and my on-camera, uh, my on-camera reel and my resume and different facts and, and bios mm-hmm. are, are available. And, uh, and I put that stuff out there, and I submit myself on individual projects, and I am often doing uh, a piece I'm often doing theater uh which I invite people to come see uh, I'm right now I'm doing a, a play called Double Falsehood at the Actor Circle Theater in West Hollywood uh and and I do student film or not student films very much anymore but I'll do independent projects of, for for people you know who are also artistic and uh, and like-minded um and uh you know i basically i'm 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 constantly doing stuff to put myself out there uh to become visible and 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 uh and make connections and and practice and and yeah, maintain to keep my honing own the sense. craft right right exactly exactly you've worked in every facet of the entertainment industry both in front of and behind the camera if you could wave your magic wand and do only one thing what would that be I've been having such a great time doing voiceover uh, the last several years, uh, and I have been fortunate enough to be on a number of television shows in recurring roles and even some principal roles. I think if I had to choose, it's a tough one because, you know, again, it's we, we all kind of feel like we can do it all. But if I had to choose, I think that I would like to be a principal role on an ongoing educationally viable or educationally rich animated television show uh, where I would have some creative input. Well, that's your first love. I mean, I think that's understandable. You can tell by how you talk about it. 
you know, you're, you're soaked in passion with respect to uh, your voice roles. I mean, that's, I think, very clear. Let's go a bit further in terms of your passion for teaching. You mentioned it earlier. Tell us a bit more exactly as to what you're doing. And then uh, let's talk about what do you see as the relationship between acting and teaching and how you set the standard in both concurrently. Mm-hmm. Well, I work as I'm what's called a teaching artist, uh, and I work for a couple of dis- different organizations, the biggest one of which is the Center Theater Group, which is the Amundsen, the Mark Taper, and the Kirk Douglas Theaters here in Los Angeles. And they maintain a faculty of working professionals uh, who are actors, writers, designers, directors, etc. And what we do is design curriculum around, often around the plays that are on the stages of, the, of CTG. And we then take those, uh, those lessons out to underprivileged high schools and middle schools in the city and run workshops uh, to prep kids for their visits to the theater. And these are kids who often have no opportunity to see or take part in the arts of any kind, uh, let alone theater. It's, an, uh, it's basically inaccessible to them. Uh, and Center Theater Group has as part of its mission uh, an outreach program that is, that is very, very accomplished. And um, uh, it's an honor just to be a part of it. But what I, what I do is basically teach these kids uh, how to use the craft in a very, in a very sort of basic and 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 uh, un- non-threatening way, uh, because it's it's uh, accessible to everyone, uh, and then get them ready and excited to come and see the theater and what 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 it's like to see a professional production. And then I also do professional development workshops, teaching teachers how to use drama in their classroom uh, as as a tool to help to illustrate and bring to life different texts or subject matter that might be harder for some kids to understand. I don't think and, you spend too much time sleeping. <laughs> Sometimes it doesn't feel like enough. But it, it, <laughs> the thing, what, what to me, that part of it is really kind of fulfilling an obligation I feel like was, was instilled in me is that when I was younger, just to kind of bring the conversation full circle. I, my, both of my parents taught at the same time that they that they maintained their own professional lives. And I felt like that it was always sort of an, a given that I would be doing the same. And I'm fortunate enough to be in a position where I can do both. And honestly, I learn as much as an actor uh, uh, from teaching as I do uh, as I do from doing the craft itself. And, and so the more I teach, I think the better I get. And... Uh, and then, likewise, I, I bring what I've learned in the classroom back to the stage, or to you know, to in front of the camera, or behind the behind the microphone. I also meet an awful lot of interesting people that I can base voices on and things like that. And uh, and then I, and, and then, likewise, I take what I know and, and my experience in the professional acting world back to the classroom, and the kids love it. And and uh, I love to share stories with them about it. And and. Um, I think that the, the, it's a very symbiotic relationship that 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 happens uh, on both sides of that part of my career. What career advice do you have for our listeners, and how did Robert Redford's coffee cup, coffee actually, play a role? <laughs> the color of his coffee, not That's just exactly his coffee. Right. I, do you the know color, what color of his coffee. He likes? <laughs> he likes, for those who are interested, if you ever bring Robert Redford a cup of coffee, he needs it to be caramel co- colored. 
which is a very precise brown that can only be achieved from the the perfect amount of creamer added. <laughs> and I learned that the hard way. Uh, well, while I was a was a PA on a river runs through it, I was 19 years old, and the uh, that one of my primary jobs was every morning I was the guy that brought Robert Redford his coffee. He had this Airstream trailer, this really hip old silver, air, you know, metallic Airstream trailer, and I would bring him his coffee each morning in the mountains of Montana. And if I didn't get it right, he'd send it back, and uh, that sort of infuriated me for a little while. <laughs> and uh, for, for the first few days that I was doing it, I, I got it wrong a, a few times. And I don't know if he was putting me through the paces or what, but uh, I got sent back a couple of times and I wasn't happy about it. And one of the producers on the show uh, saw that I was that I was sort of frowning one day, and, he, and this guy's name was Patrick Markey. And uh, he came to me and said, you know, what what is, what is what's the problem here? And I said, you know, I've just, I, I'm just, I'm not... And this this isn't what I thought it would be. And his advice to me was, be the best you can be at whatever it is you're doing right now, and then you'll you'll have the opportunity to do other things later because people will see your desire to be the best at what you're doing right now. If you're sad and angry and bitter and thinking about all the different things you're not doing because of what you're doing right now, you're not going to do it very well, and nobody's going to want to work with you. So don't don't shoot yourself in the foot here. You've got an opportunity. You're on a film set. You're in, you're in Montana. You're interacting with Robert Redford, for God's sake. You know, enjoy that and, and make the best coffee you can make, and then maybe next week you'll end up doing something else that, that you find more challenging or rewarding. Uh, but... That was his advice to me, and I think that was great advice. And I heard the same thing uh, not so long ago from Michael Ritchie, who's the artistic director at, at Center Theater Group. And, uh, you know, he he had a similar – he was telling an anecdote about himself, but he said the same thing. that he, At some point he realized it was important for him to live in the now and be the best he could be at whatever it was he was doing because that surrounded him with people who admired him and valued him. And that provided new opportunity. But when when uh, when one doesn't do that, when one is constantly sort of wishing for something else or something better or something next, then uh, you're not very present and you're not very you're not very. Or you, or you think you're too doing. good to do it. I think. I mean, I right. remember when I was in graduate school at UCLA working on my PhD. I worked for the associate dean uh, of the school that I was in um, as her research assistant. And she was forever leaving coffee cups with that artificial creamer stuff in it. And mm-hmm. mold would, would just sit there, and she would never wash them. Well, one day the custodian said to me, I'm throwing out these cups. I'm sick of looking at this. So I decided I had better wash these cups up. Um, not that I envisioned myself. I mean, it really didn't look too appealing, but I decided those cups should, you know, they shouldn't, those mugs were hers and they shouldn't be thrown out. So I just washed them, left them, never said a word to her, and saved the cups. And I bet she appreciated it at some point down the line, right? Yeah, well, I think she realized that I must have done it because who else would do it? She knew the custodian (laughs) wasn't going to do it. There was just the two of us there. So, uh, yeah, it was was an interesting uh, experience. Yeah. What's next in your career? I know I'm very excited that uh, you did 
a gig for Modern Family that's going to be coming up shortly. That's right. Yeah, just last week, actually, just before they won the week they won the Emmy, uh, again, or all the Emmys, I should say. Gosh, they won so many this past weekend. Um, I did a little co-star spot on on the show, and uh, it was it will be in the sixth episode coming up in this in this season. Actually, the premiere of the of the season is tonight, I think, uh, on on ABC, and. Uh, the s- six episodes in, I'm not sure if that will come out to exactly six weeks from now, but uh, but six episodes in is my episode. It's called Hit and Run, and I am the hit and run driver, uh, whose name is Bruce. So uh, that was really fun. And then I also have a, a, a show that is a Lionsgate-produced show for Hulu uh, called Trailer Trash, where I, I'm, uh, I play a cartoon character named Cooter, and I've just done a bunch of video games, uh, all of which are kind of set to hit the hit the stores at uh, at Christmas and and uh I actually and I have a, I have a movie coming out called The Baby Makers and uh um and I'm and I'm doing this play right now too so I'm, I've been busy and I, and which and I'm I'm fortunate to be able to say that and then also I've been doing all of my teaching as well so uh I keep busy and I have two kids of my own so for crying out loud I know I know two little <laughs> your chicks yeah. six and three I know <laughs> how do you want your children to remember you I want my kids to remember me as as being happy and and peaceful and satisfied and present. Uh, I, I it's important to me that they see that I'm doing something that I love and that I'm dedicated to, and that they see that I love and I'm dedicated to them and their mom too. And uh, and if they can feel loved and supported and uh, courageous about doing the different things that they end up wanting to do, that's enough for me. Michael, you are a win-without-competing man. Thank you. You know your core identities, because you have a number here. You are soaked in passion for your careers. I consider them sort of, you know, different careers, an array. You compete with yourself, raising the bar higher and higher, seeking to set the standard. You understand right fits and passionately pursue them resisting the temptation to settle for less. You manage the process to achieve your goals. You have mastered the art of the pitch. You think outside the box. Thank you, Michael, for joining me today. Well, thanks so much for having me. It was an honor. To learn more about my Right Fit Method, visit winwithoutcompeting.com. You will learn about my book, drbarrow.com, that's D-R-B-A-R-R-O.com, barrowglobal.com, drarleenrightfitmethod.com. To contact my office, call 310-441-5305 or email drbarro at winwithoutcompeting.com. Remember this trigger tip. Make the right decision using the standard of the right fit. Thank you for joining me today. Goodbye for now. Dr. Arlene.